following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, it is my hope in these series of sermons that we are, when we are looking at the doctrines of grace, where we are essentially studying the saving work of the triune God, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us from Adam into Christ, from bringing us from dust to glory, from bringing us from death to life, from bringing us to wrath, to being people who are singing of being vessels of mercy. As we are studying these things, my hope is that your faith and your doctrinal convictions are anchored and rooted not in St. Augustine or in John Calvin or in Martin Luther or in the Puritans or Spurgeon or Martin Lloyd-Jones or R.C. Sproul, as good as these brothers are in articulating the truth. My hope is that your faith and your doctrinal convictions are anchored and rooted in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It was George Whitfield, the great evangelist, who said, I embrace the Calvinistic scheme, not because of Calvin, but Jesus Christ has taught it to me. I am more and more convinced that the doctrines of grace are the truths of God. They agree with the written word and with the experience of all the saints in all ages. Charles Spurgeon famously said, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people, which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and allows the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel, he says, I abhor. Last week, we began to unpack what the Bible says regarding the doctrine or the teaching of election. We saw that election number one is eternal in that God chose whom he would redeem and save not in time, but before time, before the ages began. We saw that election is personal in that God didn't merely choose a mass of people, but he chose individuals. And in choosing them, we saw that their very names before the foundation of the world were written 
in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. We saw that election is irrevocable in that it is unable to be changed or reversed. Hence, it's unable to be challenged, even though people challenge it today. It's final. The election is over. We saw that election is also mutual in that God chose us, loved us, and foreknew us before time in order that we would choose him and love him and know him in time. It's mutual. We saw in Ephesians chapter 1 that election, our election is in Christ. That is, God not only determined that Christ would be our head and our covenant representative, but he would be everything to us. Our husband, our good shepherd, our Passover lamb, our savior, our high priest, our king, and the very cornerstone upon which we, living stones in God's temple, would be built. Our election is in Christ. He chose us in Christ. He chose that Christ would be everything we would never ever need for time and eternity and for standing in his presence. Christ is everything. We saw that election is unconditional and ultimately rooted in God's sovereign grace. God didn't choose us before time because he knew that we would choose him in time. He didn't choose us because he allegedly foresaw and foreknew that we would eventually repent and believe in Christ as some would try to tell us. Friends, we saw that repentance and faith are not the root of election, but rather they are the fruit of election. We weren't chosen because we'd believe. We were chosen to believe. The difference between the words because and to in this case is the difference between truth and error. He didn't choose us because he knew we'd believe. He chose us to believe. We were chosen to believe. Listen to how Paul the Apostle put it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, a very crucial passage on the doctrine of election. Paul the Apostle says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Paul expresses the necessity of giving thanks to God for other believers because of three reasons. First, God chose them to be saved. Secondly, he chose us to be saved through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. That is, God chose to save us by means of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, setting us apart from the world, and consecrating us to be God's holy people. And then he says, thirdly, that he chose us to be saved through belief in the truth. That's very important. He chose us to believe through faith in the truth, through belief in the truth. This teaches us that God didn't just choose and determine our end, salvation, but in election, he also chooses and determines the means to reach that end, the Holy Spirit's work in setting us apart. And number two, our belief in the truth of the gospel. Saving faith is the fruit, not the root, of election. 
It's the effect of election, not the cause of election. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 13 this morning, Acts chapter 13. I want you this morning to see the connection between election and saving faith. The link between election and believing in Christ. Acts chapter 13. This is the third message on unconditional election. We'll move on after this to consider the saving work of Christ in his death, the extent of his death, the design of his death. Just to give you some context to Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 13, Paul and his companions are in a synagogue in Antioch. They end up in a synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia. And as they're sitting there, just try to picture this. The rulers in the synagogue say to them, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. You talk about an open door, right? Lord, give me an open door to preach the gospel today. And as you're sitting there, the rulers of the synagogue say, brothers, if you have any words of encouragement, bring it forward. So Paul stands up. He motions with his hand, presumably to get the attention of the people, and he begins to preach the gospel, beginning with the patriarchs, moving his way through the exodus in Egypt, out of Egypt. Paul moves through redemptive history, and he ultimately lands upon the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Savior, and the forgiveness of sins that is promised to everyone who believes in Jesus. Well, after finishing, the people, verse 42 begged to hear this message again the following Sabbath. They were saying, we want to hear this again next week. Please, whoever's in charge of the synagogue, we want to hear this again next week. Well, the next Sabbath, we're told that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This was a huge open door that God had opened for the apostle. But when the Jews saw that the crowds had come to hear the gospel... We're told here by Luke that they were filled with jealousy and they began to revile Paul and to contradict Paul. And picking it up in verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to who? To the Jews who were grumbling against this. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, non-Jews. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, he quotes the Old Testament here, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're going to go beyond the borders of Israel. Well, listen to this, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That's how it happens, folks. God chooses before time. The gospel goes out in time and sinners believe the gospel. It's rooted in election. Verse 48 is key. 
It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Saving faith is the fruit of election, not the root of election. Against this simple and straightforward reading of this passage, a modern scholar, if you will, Leighton Flowers, argues that this appointment to eternal life is not God's appointment, but rather man's appointment. He argues that Acts 13.48 is a parallel to Acts 13.46, two verses prior, where Paul and Barnabas say to the Jews, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In his 13-minute video entitled Acts 13.48 De-Calvinized, Leighton Flowers argues that as the Jews judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, there were these Gentile God-fearers in the crowd who already worshipped God, who, quote, positioned themselves concerning eternal life. They were open to eternal life. And Flowers accuses his opponents, I guess you'd call them Calvinists, I'd rather just be called a Christian personally, he accuses us of assuming that this appointment to eternal life is, number one, God's appointment, and number two, that this appointment is identical with God's unconditional election that took place before the world began. Well, here's the problem with that objection. While it's true that the Jews were actively opposing Paul's message, they were actively contradicting Paul, actively reviling Paul, that's true. Nothing in this passage says that the Gentiles had actively positioned themselves or actively opened themselves up to the message of eternal life. On the contrary, the word appointed in the Greek is in the perfect tense, meaning that this appointment is a completed past action resulting in something in the present and in the future. It's a completed past action. Furthermore, this word appointed in the original is in the passive voice which means that the subject is being acted upon. Who are the subjects? Let's go to first grade or second grade, whenever children learn these things. Who are the subjects in the passage? The Gentiles who had believed. They're the subjects, and they're being acted upon by something or someone outside of themselves. They were appointed to eternal life. Was it because they had actively positioned themselves to believe in the same way that the Jews were actively opposing Paul, as some argue? No. They had been appointed to eternal life by something or someone outside of themselves. They were passive in the whole thing. And when we look to the rest of the Bible and ask, hmm, who or what could have appointed these Gentiles to eternal life? Who could have done this? Well, it's probably not the devil. Probably not the angels, because the angels have no authority to grant eternal life, life eternal. Who or what would have the power and the authority to grant eternal life to these sinners? Hmm. I wonder who or what could do that. John Calvin's presuppositions? Oh, wait, no, John Calvin isn't in the Bible. Spurgeon or R.C. Sproul or John Piper or John MacArthur? Paul Washer? No, those guys aren't in the Bible either. 
Maybe it was, oh, I don't know, God. God who appointed these people to eternal life, even as we're told everywhere else in the Bible that he does the choosing, he does the saving, he does the ordaining, he does the foreknowing and the predestining, and he does all the work. Friends, it's, as I watched this video, I was just amazed at how many people will work so hard to deny God's unconditional election. They even brought in a Greek scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary to talk about how this word appointment means more of like a, you're being opened to it and you're positioning yourself and we don't even have to go far. The text is very clear. But it's amazing how people will work hard to just get around what's obvious and then accuse us of forcing these alleged presuppositions into passages like Acts 13, 48. These Gentiles had actively believed. That's true, according to the Greek, the end of the verse. They actively believed, but it was because they had passively, before the foundation of the world, been the objects of God's unconditional electing grace and mercy. Even if you want to argue that these Gentiles were already God-fearing God-worshippers who met in the synagogues and who weren't like their fellow Gentiles who were involved in paganism and false religion, even if you want to argue that, it doesn't change the fact that they still had to believe the gospel. They still had to come to faith in Christ. They still had to repent. It doesn't change the fact that saving faith is the sovereign gift of God's grace. It doesn't change the fact that like Cornelius... And his Gentile household earlier on in the book of Acts, whom Luke says feared God and prayed continually to God, it doesn't change the fact that he was still devoid of the Spirit of God. He was still in need of salvation, and they still had to believe the gospel. It doesn't change the fact that Luke summarizes the whole thing. The whole account of Cornelius and his Gentile household believing, he summarizes it like this, Acts 11, 18. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Paul looks back, or Luke looks back at the entire story of Cornelius and his household, and he says, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles, leading to eternal life. Friends, these truths are not forced upon the biblical text. These truths are dripping from the biblical text. Jesus himself, in the parable of the wedding feast, in Matthew chapter 22, declared that, quote, many are called, and according to the parable, this is the outward call of the gospel, that invitation that goes out to all, many are called, but few are chosen. He himself taught us that. We are to know that when we go out. We are to give the gospel to everyone. We are to call men and women and children to turn from their ways, to turn from their unbelief, to turn and find forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We are to do that, but we are to know that among all those that we call externally and outwardly, we know that there is an inward call that is determined by God's election, his choice. Those who enter the wedding feast, he says, are chosen. Jesus referred to the people of God in Matthew 24 as God's elect, God's chosen ones. 
The Gospel according to John, in my opinion, is not only the most evangelistic of the four Gospels, calling us again and again to believe, to trust, to take the bread of life. It's also, in my opinion, the most Calvinistic of the four Gospels, meaning that the doctrines of grace, the tulip, right, the total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement or particular redemption, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints, they seem to drip like honey, sweet honey, from the gospel according to John. Of course, we use larger theological terms like unconditional election, but listen to how the greatest of all teachers refers to these things. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. No one ever spoke like this man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how he articulates the doctrine of election, and as we'll see next week, the doctrine of limited atonement or particular, definite redemption. You remember that Jesus is teaching here that he is the bread of life. He has just fed thousands And he's teaching, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We'll look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So what's the crucial point here? What's the the matter here? Is their unbelief? Their unbelief. Their refusal to come to him as the bread of life and to find eternal life in him by believing in him. That's the issue here. Now look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Do you see how he can hold the doctrine of election and the free offer of the gospel in one hand? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive them away. I will never cast them out. Election and the invitation in one hand. All the Father gives me will come to me. And we have to ask, well, who are these ones that the Father has given him? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So you see here that Jesus teaches clearly that there are a people who will come to him, who will embrace him, who will believe in him. And where did they come from? Well, they came from the Father. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. This has very practical implications that fuel the fires of our worship. If you have come to Christ, if you have come to love him and treasure him and embrace him, do you realize that you're not just a Christian? You are a love gift from the Father to the Son. The Father chose you before time began and gave you to his Son. And his Son came into the world for you to bear your sin, to bear your blame, and then to clothe you in his righteousness. You are a love gift from the Father to the Son. That's what you are. Regarding these verses, this um, Leon Morris, very well-known, respected commentator, says, The words stress the sovereignty of God. People do not come to Christ because it seems a good idea to them. It never does seem a good idea to sinful people. Apart from a divine work in their souls, people remain more or less content in their sins. Before they can come to Christ, it is necessary that the Father give them to him. Let's turn over to John chapter 10. Very well-known chapter. We hear John 10 and we think of the good shepherd and his sheep. And it evokes imagery of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, my shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the shepherd we have in Jesus. Well, let's begin in verse 1 of John chapter 10. This beautiful picture of the sheep and their shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And so Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, 
but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then the imagery changes. He goes from claiming to be the door to now being the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And now listen, this is usually the case after he speaks. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is immediately following John 9 when he opens the eyes of the blind man. Well, look at verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Again, just like John 6, what's the issue? They don't believe. They're unwilling to come to him. You do not believe. The works, he continues on in verse 25, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. In other words, just look at what I'm doing. Raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, casting out demons, taking lame people by the hand and enabling them to walk and to leap like deer. My works bear witness about who I am. Verse 26, but you do not believe and notice why. Because... You are not among my sheep. Do you see this? The reason you don't believe is because you're not among my sheep. You're not among my sheep. We often get it backwards today, right? We say, well, if you believe, you can become one of his sheep. Jesus says that's not the order. You're a sheep that has been given to the good shepherd by the father, and therefore you come to believe in the shepherd. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, look at what they do, verse 27. They hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And now we ask the question, where did these sheep come from, Jesus? What are you talking about? Where did they come from? We get that no one can come to you unless it's granted him. We get that, that all that the Father gives you will come to you. 
and that, that this giving has already taken place, we, we know that this has happened already. So where are these sheep coming from? Well, look at verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And now verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Where did these sheep come from? From the father. All that the father gives me will come to me. What a beautiful picture that there are people in this world that though they currently are living in unbelief, wanting nothing to do with Christ, just like you were before you came, just like I was. There are people in this world that have already in election been given by the father to the son. You can mark it down. The day is coming when they will hear his voice and they will know him and they will follow him because all that the father gives the son will come to him. My father who has given them, given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. If you are in the fold of Christ, you are in the hand, the omnipotent, almighty hand of the father and of the son as a sheep that's been given to Christ before the foundation of the world The Father gave you to the Son, and the Son came to lay down his life for you. I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. So again, we use all this complicated language, unconditional election and limited atonement and definite atonement and particular redemption, and we use all these theological phrases. Jesus dumbs it down even for a child to understand. He says, what you are is you're given to me by my Father. And if you've been given you will come to me and you'll hear my voice and I'll call you by name and you'll follow me and I'll give you eternal life. That's the doctrine of unconditional election according to the gospel of John. But let's keep going in the gospel of John. Let's keep going. Go over a few chapters to John 13. We have the last supper here where our Lord Jesus is preparing for his death He's preparing his disciples. He has just washed the disciples' feet as a picture of what he was about to do the very next morning and not washing their feet, but washing away their sins. This high, lofty king who inhabits eternity has come and he took the form of a slave, took the form of a servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's all demonstrated in the washing of the disciples' feet. Has major significance, correlation to his atoning death that would happen the very next morning. Well, as we look at John chapter 13, Jesus is continuing to speak to them. In verse 12, he says, Then when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And now listen to verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread, Judas, has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. In other words, Jesus tells his disciples, Judas is already gone, by the way. He has already gone to the religious rulers to come and betray Jesus. He's already left. But Jesus looks at his disciples that night, the remaining 11, and he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And now we go to John chapter 15. Christian just read it at the beginning of the service. John 15, beginning in verse 16, we tend to think that this is only speaking about the apostleship of these 11 disciples. John 15, verse 16. Notice what Jesus says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And then he makes a distinction between them and the world, which is very common in John's writings. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So you had these men who belonged to the category of the world before they encountered Jesus. That's the category they were in. They weren't in the category of potential candidates for apostleship, free agents. No, the category was the world. And the world in John's gospel and his writings is the unbelieving world, the world in sin, the world dead in their trespasses and sins. Until what? Jesus calls them, chooses them, not from free agency, not from potential candidates for apostleship. He chose them out of the world to become his own, to be his followers, to be his torchbearers, to go and ultimately bear fruit for the glory of God. I chose you. You did not choose me. And finally, I point you to John chapter 17, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. If I do have a deathbed experience and you happen to be there, I want you to read John 17 until the Lord takes me home. If that's the way the Lord designs this thing. John 17, such a precious chapter. Jesus, this is his high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross the very next morning. This is his pouring out of his heart to his father in preparation for his death. I love this. Now listen. John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 16, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, as I read this, I want you to note all the words given, gave, because they appear frequently in this chapter. 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Three times. The first giving is what? Father, you gave me all authority in heaven and on earth. To do what? Number two, to give eternal life. To who? All whom you have given me. Now, lest we're mistaken on anything, this is eternal life. Look at verse three. That they know you. That's eternal life, friends. Eternal life is not necessarily unending life or a very, 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 very long life. Eternal life, as defined by Jesus, is a living relationship with the living God, a saving relationship with the living God. This is eternal life, that they know you. Who knows the Father? No one can know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Right? We saw that in Matthew 11. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let's keep going. I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Here's another give. The Father has given the Son a work to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may know, they have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only. So he's thinking of his immediate followers, his, his men and those that he had reached through his entire earthly ministry. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Notice the confidence with which he speaks here. He didn't come into the world saying, man, Father, I'm going to go to the cross, and I just hope that someone out there is going to believe in me. Oh, I just, I hope this isn't for nothing. 
I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to make salvation possible like a lifesaver out in the middle of the ocean. I just hope that someone's going to lay hold of it. That's not biblical salvation. Salvation is, there's a mission. Salvation is rooted in a rescue mission. The father gave his son a people and the son came to lay down his life for these people. And it's not a matter of if they will believe because he's already established that back in chapter six and in chapter 10. It's not a matter of, well, if any believe it's, I'm not praying for them only, Father. I'm praying for all those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's us. He knows that people will believe. Why? Because the Father has given these people to him. It's secure. It's set. That's why he goes with confidence to the cross and prays this. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me. It's dripping from the pages, folks. It's dripping like honey. From the Gospel of John. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I them. Who does Jesus want to be with him for all eternity? Those that the Father gave him. Jesus says, I desire that they behold my glory which you've given me. So we have this constant giving in John 17, the Father giving all authority to the Son, the Father giving glory to the Son before the foundation of the world, the Father giving the Son a people, the Son giving those people the words of God. Uh, It's just all over the place. It's what we were saying last week. Election is reciprocal. It's, It's the Father giving us to the Son and then us giving ourselves over to the Son and the Son then giving us the revelation of the Father, and us then giving glory to the Father, it's just this constant giving that all begins in the doctrine of election. Well, as we come to our conclusion this morning, I point you to one more passage, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. In theology, we call this transaction, if you will, this giving of the people of God from the Father to the Son, we call this, for lack of better words, we call it the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption refers to God before the foundation of the world, covenanting within the Trinity in order to accomplish salvation. Louis Burkhoff defines the covenant of redemption concisely in this fashion. He says, The covenant of redemption may be defined 
as the agreement between the Father, giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect, and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father has given him. And so when we think of the role of the Father in the plan of salvation, in the covenant of redemption, what's the role of the Father? Well, first and foremost, choosing to save a undeserving, hell-deserving people and giving them to the Son, who will then come and secure their redemption. The Father promised the Son a reward. Read at the end of Isaiah 53. He would divide the spoil with the strong as a result of his obedient death. He would lavish him with glory and honor as a result of his death. There's, I mean, you can just trace throughout the entire Bible of everything that the Father planned to do for the Son as he would come and accomplish our salvation. And then the Son's role in redemption is he would come and actually purchase us, lay down his life for us. It was agreed that the Father would prepare a body for the Son, that the eternal Son of God who is spirit, like God is spirit, was given by the Father a a, a real flesh and blood body that would bear the weight of our sin and then bear the awful weight of God's judgment and wrath in our place for our sin. It's the covenant of redemption. The Father plans it, the Son purchases it, and then the Spirit then applies it to us. That's the Father's part in the covenant. That's the Son's part but we know that the Spirit is involved as well because we're told in Hebrews chapter 9 that the Spirit enabled the Son to lay down His life as a sacrifice for our sins. He, through the eternal Spirit, offered up Himself to God. Here we see the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working distinctly, right? The Father's doing one thing. The Father didn't lay down His life for us. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, didn't lay down his life for us. The Son came to lay down his life for us because he was given the body. The Spirit isn't the one who necessarily comes and works miracles. Um, That was was Jesus' role in the Gospels. But we know that the Spirit was involved to some degree because he was empowering him. So we have one God existing in three persons working distinctly to accomplish one Glorious end, the salvation of God's elect to the praise of his glorious grace. It's the covenant of redemption. Well, as we come now to Romans chapter 9, some have likened Romans chapter 8 to a beautiful mansion, a house that we can get lost in forever because of its promises. You open this door and you find the promise of adoption, and you revel in that room for a little while. And then you go down the hall, you open up another door in Romans chapter 8, and you see that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you find your soul just fed there and nourished there, and you walk away, and you go into another room. And you go up the stairs, you know, to the 45th floor, and you get onto another room, and that room says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you spend another Who knows how long there? And Romans chapter 8 is this beautiful house, this mansion describing the glories of salvation. But like every house, it has a foundation, and that's Romans chapter 9. Many people see Romans chapter 9 as the unwanted chapter in the book of Romans. In fact, when expositions are done in the book of Romans, people obviously often end with Romans chapter 8. 
and they view Romans 9, 10, and 11 as some kind of a unnecessary parenthesis in the writing of Paul. So they'll go from Romans chapter 8 to then Romans chapter 12 and talking about offering ourselves as living sacrifices while they bypass these crucial chapters. Well, the issue that's raised in Romans chapter 9 flows out of the promises given in Romans chapter 8. What are the promises given in Romans chapter 8? There's no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. Nothing will separate them from the love of God. Death, life, angels, demons, nothing can separate them from the love of God. They are given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The sufferings of this present life are unworthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us later. All of those promises are just shining forth from Romans chapter 8. Well, then an obvious question comes up in the Apostle Paul's mind because he's dealing with those who are going to raise objections. How, Paul, can we, as the church, bank our eternity on the word and promise of God. Isn't that what Israel did in the Old Testament? And where are they today? Have they not all, for the most part, rejected their Messiah? So has the word of God failed? That's the thesis of Romans 9, 10, and 11, as we're going to see here. So Romans chapter 9, let's begin in verse 1. Remember the very last thing that was said in Romans chapter 8. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul, again, there's no chapter and division numbers in the original manuscripts, right? This, is, this was all one letter. The very thing that flows next is Paul saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And he just begins to, as he did at the beginning of Romans chapter 3. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, my sorrow is compounded by the fact that these of all the people in the history of the world were the most privileged To them belong the adoption. God adopted them as his own child when he brought them out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. To them belongs the glory in the temple as God would come down and that Shekinah glory would be revealed. Theirs was the glory. No other nation saw it. Theirs was the covenants that God made. Abraham, David, the Sinai covenant the giving of the law, all their promises. But the best thing that came from them 
was the incarnate Son of God. To them came the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says here in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, because it looks like the word of God has failed. It looks like the word of God has failed in bringing Israel to salvation. It looks as though the word of God has fallen to the ground. So how can we celebrate Romans 8 when it looks like to some that the word of God has failed? That's what Paul's dealing with in this chapter. Well, notice how he begins to answer that question. Has the word of God failed? Well, answer number one, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, not all of Israel's physical descendants are part of the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, the Israel of God. And verse 7, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, his physical offspring. But, as was promised to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that God's word has not failed Because there is a spiritual Israel, a true Israel, who has received the Christ. He himself is proof of that. He's a Jewish man. All the apostles, Jewish men. Early church, by and large, were, were Jewish men and women. The word of God has not failed. Well, he goes on. Verse nine verse nine, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, God says to Abram and Sarah. I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also with when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So this is Jacob and Esau now. And now listen to how God describes this through Paul. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, Esau is going to serve Jacob, which was completely opposite of Jewish culture. What's driving this whole thing? It's God's purpose of election. That's what's driving this. As it is written, verse 13, very offensive verse to many, many people. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, God said. And it's offensive for the wrong reason 99% of the time. We're offended by the last phrase, Esau I have hated. But what should astound us and amaze us is that God loved Jacob. When you realize something about the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, the phrase that should knock you off your seat is not Esau I have hated. The phrase that should rock your socks is that God loved Jacob. I don't know about you, but as I'm making my way through Genesis right now, I read the story about Jacob and Esau, and I find myself rooting for Esau much of the time because Jacob was not a great person. He was not a good person. He was a deceiver, a manipulator. 
Jacob was not a good guy. Eventually, maybe we see him refined and sanctified as all of God's people are. But I find myself rooting for Esau much of the time. Well, before they had done anything good or bad, God had already made his choice. What should shock us is not that God in his righteousness hated Esau. And if you read actually the account of Esau, God blessed the man. You see, we tend to... In, we, we tend to impose upon God our conceptions of hatred in this world. When we think of hatred, we think of someone childish, you know, a, a chi- in a childish way, just burning with anger and wanting to see someone just crushed. And we think that that's God's anger. As we're going to see in the text, God's hatred, rather, is just his passing over Esau in order that his purpose of election might continue. He does no wrong to Esau. As we're going to see, he does no wrong to anyone in choosing people and passing over some. Well, verse 14, Paul, in the back of his mind, is picturing an objection. And the objector says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? He can probably hear someone saying, that's not fair. That's not just. That's not right that God would love some and choose some and pass over others. That's not fair. Paul asks, is there injustice on God's part? Notice the answer. By no means. For, he says to Moses, going back to Sinai, I, and in the English here, we have nouns. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In the original, the Greek had no, how how, how do I say this? There was, these are verbs in the Greek. So literally what he's saying is, I will mercy whom I mercy, and I will compassion whom I compassion. In other words, the question, when we question God's fairness and his justice in choosing some and passing over others, the issue is not so much justice, the issue is mercy. In other words, God has the, in other words, God has the right to show mercy and compassion to whom he wills, to whom he wishes. Why? Because everyone deserves judgment. Everyone deserves wrath for our sin. There's a reason Romans 9 comes after Romans 1. Romans 1 establishes the sinfulness of man. It shows us what we are. Not the barbarians out there off in this island. It shows us what we are apart from God's intervention in our lives. We are glory haters and glory traitors. We are boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such sins deserve to die, we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice them. There's a reason Romans 1 comes before Romans chapter 9, so that we don't question the fairness of election. Because everyone deserves to be rejected. Everyone deserves to be passed over. Everyone deserves God's judgment. So for God to say, I'm going to have mercy on some, and I'm going to have compassion on some, that's his prerogative. Those who are on death row, us, have no right to question what he does with his mercy. Because we all deserve judgment. Verse 16. So then it, salvation, depends not on human will, 
or exertion, running, striving, effort. But it depends on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he points back to this historical account of the most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth in that time, the Pharaoh of the nation of Egypt, the ruler, the most powerful man in the world. And what does God say to him? I raised you up. It is he who establishes kings and establishes governments. It is he who grants power and wisdom and authority on earth. In other words, no one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from above. Everything that Pharaoh was, was given to him by God. God enabled him to be the most powerful ruler in the most powerful nation. For this very purpose, I raised you up. For what reason? That I, God, might show my power in you and through you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And did God do that? You bet God did it. You don't want to know the, the reputation the Israelites had as they were moving into the promised land? That's that nation, that small little nobody nation that God is for. And God brought them out of the most powerful nation on the earth. And he drowned the greatest army in the world in order to bring a people out for his glory, to rescue them from their bondage. You're that people that have that God, right? That God is your God, right? That his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, that's the bottom line issue. Whose name are you concerned about in the world? Your name or God's name? Who do you want to receive glory? God or you? What's your greatest longing? To see his name proclaimed and made much of in the world or something else? Because if it's something else, you're not going to understand Romans 9 and you're not going to accept the doctrine of unconditional election because this is about his name being proclaimed in all the earth. Let's move on as we come to a conclusion here in order that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And verse 18, so then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's his prerogative. Let me remind you that in hardening a sinner, he's not violating a sinner. Remember Romans chapter 1 and 2 and much of chapter 3? There's already no one who does good, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. In their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So for God to show mercy, that's his prerogative. But for God to harden someone... He does no wrong to them because they're already hard. They already hate his glory. They already would be content to trade his glory for lesser things, for idols, for the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so in hardening them, I mean, think about it. What does God have to do to harden a sinner? He just has to walk away. He just has to back off. 
He just has to give them over, to use the language of Romans 1, he just has to give them over to their ways. He just has to say, I won't bother you. You want your sin? That's all he has to do, to harden a sinner. He doesn't get in there and actively, you know, make them love their sin. No, God is holy. And he backs away. And he gives people over. And that's his prerogative. And he does no one wrong. And so, moving on to verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, why does he still hold sinners accountable? If they can't do anything about it, why does he still hold them accountable? Why does he still find fault? If he has chosen to pass over some, like Esau, why does he still find fault with Esau? A lot of people raise this question. And the crucial thing, that as we look at these objections, that you need to ask yourself, because I've spoken with Christians before, well-meaning Christians, is in these objections, are you on the side of the Apostle Paul? Or are you on the side of his objectors? Because if you're on the side of his objectors, there's something really, really off in your own theology. You want to be on the side of the Apostle Paul. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? Notice the answer here. Verse 20. And in the Greek, it's, oh man. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He draws this imagery from everyday life back then. It was common for you to be in the market, to be going down the street, to go get your groceries or go to Sam's or whatever it was in that day, and you would see a, a, a potter. And he had his wheel, and, he's, and, and he's, he's forming pots, and he's taking clay, and he's forming pots, and he's taking clay and more, forming more pots. And you go to him and you say, hey, I, I, need a, I need a really beautiful pot. I have some company coming next week. Um, and I, 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 need, I need some beautiful pottery. We're, we're going to have this. We're going to barbecue. We're going to do this. And we're going to put bread in there. And I, we want it to look beautiful. It's going to be for honorable use. And then the next guy comes back and says to that same potter, hey, man, I, I just need a pot for my waist. I, I just need a trash can. Can you do that? And so he takes out of the same lump. Boom. Takes one. Makes a beautiful pot. And it holds beautiful things. And out of that same lump, he takes another chunk of it and he forms just, just a regular pot that can hold human waste or something for dishonorable use, something not extravagant, right? That's exactly what he does. And the issue here is, does God not have the right, the right to take out of the same lump and form one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What is that lump, we have to ask ourselves? Is it an innocent humanity? Is that lump a, 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 a people who are generally good and God-loving and forgiving and merciful and desiring to give glory to God? Or is this lump what Romans 1 says? Is this lump comprised of glory haters and glory traitors and human boasters and people who refuse to give God what is his? people who love their iniquity and love their sin, that's the lump, friends. And you get in trouble when you think that that lump is comprised of 
good people and innocent people. You see, we tend to think of humanity as generally good and God, this intrusive God that is just bad and mean and unjust. That's not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective that should force us to tremble and to rejoice with trembling is not why do bad things happen to good people. Biblically, why does God allow anything good to happen to bad people? Why does God allow any good in our lives? That's the question. That's the perspective of Romans chapter 9. Has the potter no right to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Verse 22, look at this. The argument comes to a head. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and again, this is wrath against sin, not wrath against innocent people. This is wrath against glory haters and glory traitors. Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, as he did with Pharaoh in judging him, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Do you see Paul's apologetic here? The potter's freedom is the ultimate freedom. His dispensation of mercy is his prerogative because no one deserves mercy. If you and I, that's, that's the fundamental flaw with man's religions today, is that if we do enough, we can earn God's mercy and favor and his grace. If we do enough, he can show us his grace and mercy. But the second mercy and grace are owed, they're no longer mercy and grace. That's the nature of mercy and grace is it's entirely undeserved. And so God, what has he done? Out of this mass of fallen humanity, this clay that deserves hell, that deserves wrath, that deserves the eternal outpouring of his just judgment, what has he done? Has he made them all just vessels of wrath to demonstrate his wrath and to hold his power against sin for all eternity? No, it would have been just for him to do that. It would have been just for him to leave us in our sin exposed to eternal punishment, but he didn't do that. He took out of that same lump of clay people like us, like you. And though you deserve to be a vessel of wrath, he made you a vessel of mercy into which he pours the riches of his grace and mercy and that will hold the rich treasures of his grace and mercy for all eternity to the praise of his great name, to the praise of his great glory, to the praise of his great mercy. We all deserve to be rejected. None deserve to be elected. It would be a miracle of sovereign grace if God just chose one person to be saved, but he has not. He has taken out of this lump of fallen, sinful, God-hating, glory-trading humanity a mass of people that no man can number. And they will be around his throne for all eternity. 
sheep that have been paid for, a bride that has been purchased, people that have been atoned for, and they will sing of his saving righteousness for all eternity, and they will say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love, for the sake of your truth and faithfulness. Election, friends, does not encourage sin. Some people say, well, I can never believe in the doctrine of election because if I'm chosen, well, it just means I can sin and do whatever I want because after all, I'm chosen. If you live that way, it shows that you're not of God's people because those who are chosen are also purchased by the blood of Christ and also indwelt by the spirit, the sanctifying spirit of God. Election promotes assurance. My assurance does not flow from the good things I do for God. My assurance is based upon the truthfulness of his word when he says that those whom he has foreknown, he is predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That in Christ he has chosen me to be holy and blameless before him. It, it, it fuels our assurance. That's why Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. It promotes holiness. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Election promotes godly living, to walk in good works. As Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Election promotes humility, to know that I was in that lump of clay next to that other guy that's going to hell, that God justly passed over, and I deserve that. And the only difference between me and sinners that are on their way to hell is that God mercied me. He compassioned me. Nothing in me would have chosen him had he not chosen me. Election promotes praise, does it not? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul is not just writing a doctrinal statement, a doctrinal treatise there. He's exploding with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's done. For what reason? For the praise of his glorious grace. It promotes praise. It promotes gratitude. When we see other believers, the first thing that comes to your mind when you see other believers is not what's wrong with them, but 2 Thessalonians 2.13, I ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, sisters. Why? Because God has chosen you to be saved through the work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. I'm thankful that God chose you, brother, I'm thankful that God chose you, sister. And lastly, the doctrine of election fuels the Great Commission. If everything we've read in the Gospel of John and in Acts 13 is true, and we know it is true, we can't walk away from this and say, well, God's going to save whomever he's going to save, and I'm just going to go and eat Cheetos and watch the football game later. God's just going to do what he's going to do, and I'll just live disobediently. No, election encourages the greatest use of means, prayer and evangelism 
and opening your mouth boldly for the gospel. I went to the store yesterday and met a young lady there and gave her a tract. And, 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 and it, all those are means. God uses means to accomplish his end. He's ordained the end, but he's also ordained the means. Whenever you believed the gospel, God predestined that moment, that messenger, that message, that Bible, that tract, that CD, that, that QR code. He uses means for his great end. How do you, I know, you might say, if I'm chosen? How do I know that I'm among the number of God's elect? If you believe in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins, that is evidence that you've been chosen. The gospel, if you believe the gospel, it's because you've been chosen. What is the gospel? The gospel is the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ and that he calls everyone everywhere to repent of sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Every one of us, each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law, rebelling against his rule, and the penalty for our sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son, Jesus, to live for his people's sake, the perfect, obedient life God requires, and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. After three days of being in the grave, dead for us, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority. And from that throne, our Savior offers us eternal life, eternal blessedness, redemption, resurrection, eternal life in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and believes solely in Jesus for salvation. You believe that message, my friend, you are chosen. Rejoice.